I'd like to ask if you would open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you have the Bible app on your phone, you can load up the YouVersion Bible app, and you can hit the menu button and look for an event near you, and you'll find the notes there. That's an easy way for us to follow along if you want to take advantage of that. Happy Father's Day. Uh, it is Father's Day, and uh, I, I spoke to you uh, on Mother's Day regarding lessons that your mother taught you. You remember any of those lessons your mom taught you and how they actually had kind of a godly perspective? Even the one, what was the very first one? Don't forget to change your underwear. You never know when you're going to be in an accident, right? There's even a godly perspective to be uh, picked up from that. And I thought about doing something similar to that on Father's Day. But then I looked at our speaking schedule. We're in this series of sermons on transitioning. And I really saw that this sermon, this topic will fit well with dads. Because your dad, if he was a good dad taught you some important lessons along the way. And we're talking about transitioning from being defensible, I'm sorry, from being defensive to being teachable. And whatever kind of lesson that your dad taught you along the way, that lesson can only be valuable if you're teachable. If you were the kind of kid that when your dad told you something like, hey, you know, you need to do this or change the oil in your car, and you were kind of like, I don't have to change the oil in my car, you can't tell me, then that was no good at all to you. But if you're the kind of person who has a teachable heart, then those good lessons that your father and your mother and anybody else gave you were helpful. A lot of us tend to be defensive. I tend to be defensive from time to time. And what I want to talk to you today about is transitioning from having a defensive mindset to having a mindset that is open and willing to be taught, particularly to be taught things about your spiritual life. We've been talking about that transitioning since before I went to the Middle East. We, we began, we talked about transitioning your view of success. Like success maybe isn't having the biggest boat on Kerbinsville Lake, but rather success is about who you are with God and how you're serving him. We talked about transitioning your perspective on vulnerability and how the tough guy, macho kind of thing that a lot of us have is kind of fun, but it's not always healthy for us. And there are times that honest, genuine vulnerability can really work to our benefit. The transition that we're talking about today is to transition from someone who is defensible, defensive and unteachable to being someone who is willing to be taught. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, like, well, I don't know if this is going to be helpful to me. I'm not that defensive a person. I can't believe Pastor Steve would suggest as much. <laughs> yeah, thanks. You kind of proved the point, right? Maybe this is, I can make it easy for you. I am one of the most offensive people I know. You may look at me and say, Pastor Steve, I haven't noticed that about you. That's because I hide it well. But man, as soon as, as soon as my wife or you or anyone wants to bring up some kind of flaw in my nature, in my character, some kind of failing I have, my brain is scrambling to figure out ways to defend myself. And it works very well. And I would say I'm in good company because it's the company of Adam, but he's not a good example here because Adam was the kind of guy who was really good at defending himself rather than being teachable. Jesus walks, I'm sorry, God walks through the Garden of Eden and says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And you know what he said. He said, well, the woman that, by the way, you put here, she gave me this fruit and I ate it. That's your dad, Adam, doing that. That's me, your pastor, doing that. That's you, doing that. We are always, we are all rather, individuals who struggle with being defensive. 
Now, when you look into the Bible, you can find individuals who had that struggle, but who, who found victory in that struggle. One of the people that I see in Scripture who does not seem to be defensive at all is a gentleman named David, the shepherd king, King David. When you take a look at him, you see him not being defensive at times when most of us would have been. He's a man that the Bible characterizes as being after God's own heart. Many people have conjectured, well, what exactly does that mean? A man after God's own heart. What was it about David that made him a man who was fashioned after the very heart of God? And there are many answers to that question. I want to suggest to you that one of the answers to that question is, is that he was a man who was teachable. He was a man who could, when confronted with something he had done that was wrong, he was willing to learn from that and transform from that. In fact, David is an individual who, even when he was being unjustly criticized to the point that this guy's throwing rocks at him and the soldiers around him are saying, David, can, we, can I go down and kill him? The guy's throwing rocks. Let me go kill him. David says, no, <laughs> leave him alone. Maybe God told him to do that. And he really left the justice regarding that situation in the hands of his son, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. David didn't take it into his own hands to defend himself there. He never leaned toward being defensive. He always leaned toward teachability. That's what I want for me. I want to be a man who's teachable. That's what I want for you. I want you to be people who are teachable. So we're going to look at a moment in David's life when he epitomized good teachability. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, before I read the text, I kind of like to give you some context so you have an idea of what's going on here. If, you're, if you haven't looked at this in a while, here's what's going on. David has done a terrible thing. He's done several terrible things. First, he coveted his neighbor's wife. That's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's iPhone, thy neighbor's Android. That's right in there. So David's done that. Number two, David has committed adultery with his neighbor's wife. Number three, David has borne false witness, so to speak, and he kind of covered up the thing. Number four, by murdering his neighbor and then taking that wife. One commandment, two commandment, three commandment, four. David was good at breaking commandments. He did four in one blow, just like that. In the end of this, Nathan, the prophet, comes to David to confront him concerning his sins. Let's read these 13 verses together. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare the meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. <laughs> David burned with anger against the man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, and these four words must have cut like a knife. You are the man. This is what the Lord, 
The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household, your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, if you read on, you can see the outcome of that was horrendous. David reaped, I'm sorry, David reaped that which he had sowed for a long time to follow. I want to, to kind of just look at this story and to look at David, how he responded when he was confronted with his sin. And we're going to look at this passage and we're also going to look, I'm going to put it on a screen for you, at a passage called Psalm 51. The book of Psalms, Psalms is kind of a, a song book in the Bible. David wrote a number of them. One of them he wrote is number 51, and it's kind of a prayer where he talks about, to God, about what has just happened here. Psalm 51 is his prayer of regret, his prayer of repentance for having done what he did with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and with Uriah. What I want you to see in all of this today is that David does not respond to this with defensiveness. But rather, even as Nathan is speaking to him, and those four words, you are the man, must have pierced his heart. David let his heart remain open and teachable. That's what I want to do. I want my heart to be open. I want it to be teachable. There are a lot of things that work against us in that capacity, a lot of factors that contribute to us being defensive about things in our life. And I'm going to share four of them with you today. And as I share them, I think that you'll see like number one, number two, number three, you'll say, wait a minute, you can't really avoid these things, Pastor Steve. I mean, I'd like to avoid the factors that contribute to defensiveness, but I think I'd have to die to do that. And you're right. You cannot avoid these things in your life, but you can choose how you will respond to these things in your life. And that's what I want to help you do today. The first of these factors can be thought of as an experience of shame. Shame instead of reassurance. I'm a redhead. Not anymore. <laughs> you know the line, a month or two, maybe three or four months ago, I was looking in a mirror with my wife standing at my side, and I said, look at that hair. She said, yeah, it's not very red anymore. It's pretty white. And I said, it's the first time in my life I've liked the color of my hair. Yeah, it's all right with me. But my hair was orange when I was a kid. Rusty knows what that feels like a little bit. Mine was way oranger than yours, though, buddy. Something that goes with having red hair is uh, fair skin. And something that goes with having fair skin is a tendency that when you blush, you blush in living color. You really do. And I always felt from my childhood, that's kind of unfair. I do something that's already embarrassing. Maybe nobody saw it. Oh, wait a minute, Steve, why is your face glowing like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? You must have done something embarrassing. Let's investigate this. That just, I hated that, right? 
about being fair-skinned, how easily. And you can kind of feel it, right? You kind of feel the, the, the heat coming up your neck and up your cheeks. And you know, son of a gun, my face must just be as red as a fire truck right now. Everyone knows what that feels like, whether you're a redhead or whatever. And it could be something you're embarrassed about, like, you know, maybe you forgot your homework or maybe you said something foolish or whatever, but it could be something deeply shameful. And when it's something deeply shameful, wow, that can really pierce into your heart on a deep level. And you can feel that sense of shame. I read a quote from a book to you the other day. It's by Ed Welch. It's called Shame Interrupted, How God Lifts the Pain of Worthlessness and Rejection. I just read one sentence. I want to read that sentence again with another one behind it. Listen to this. Shame is a deep sense that you're unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you or something associated with you, you feel exposed or humiliated. Or to strengthen the language, you were disgraced because you acted less than human or you were treated as if you were less than human or you were associated with something less than human and there were witnesses. We all know that kind of shame. And David must have felt that kind of shame. I mean, the way Nathan confronted him would have been something that would have evoked shame in the most unabashed of people. You are the man. What did I just say? I just said that person should die. I'm the man. And David could have become very defensive. But he didn't. What prevented that? I want to suggest to you that one of the things that prevented that was that David knew who God was. He knew what kind of God he was worshiping. It troubles me sometimes when I see Christians who never plug into Bible reading or never listen to godly podcasts or never come and hear sermons or, or small, get into small groups because I think to myself, do they really know God on a deep level and are they growing in that? Because there will come a time when they will need it. Maybe there will come a time when a Nathan will look at them and say, you are the one. And if they don't know who God is deep inside of them, then they can't help but respond with defensiveness. But David knew who God was. He knew who God was, and we know he knew who God was, because when he begins to write the song, the prayer, where he he says to God, please forgive me, his first words are, have mercy on me, O God. You don't ask God for mercy if you don't suspect that he is a merciful God. And David knows he's a merciful God because David goes on to say, the mercy I want you to have isn't because I deserve it. It isn't because I'm the king. It isn't because it's not my fault. The mercy I'm asking you to show me, O God, is because of who you are. And you are a God of unfailing love. Have mercy on me, O God, God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. How did David refrain from being defensive? What was it about him that caused him not to react in a protective way here? He knew who God was. And when you know who God was, that gives you reassurance rather than just shame. I'll give you a second factor. The second factor is this. Experiences of punishment. Punishment instead of correction. Now, there are two words that people often use interchangeably that we ought not use interchangeably, and those two words are punishment and correction. (laughs) They're not interchangeable. Punishment is exacted to pay for what is done. It is punitive in a technical sense. The death penalty is punishment. If you do a crime and the government puts you to death, it's not so that you'll learn your lesson. 
because you'll be dead. There's no correction there. That's what punishment is. Punishment is exacted to pay for what is done. Correction is extended to help you learn not to do it again. Correction's a whole different thing than is punishment. So which one does God use? Does God use punishment or does he use correction? Both. Both. Hell is punitive. No one's being rehabilitated in hell. That's punishment. But in this story, God's not just punishing David. He's correcting him. He's trying to set his course right. He's trying to help him change. And God is always doing that, always lovingly correcting his children. We're not that way, though. I just want to say, human beings, we are not like God in the sense of lovingly correcting people who have done wrong. Don't believe me? Hop onto social media. Go on to a local news, WTAJ, WJC, I don't care. Read a couple articles, maybe someone, you know, dealing with animals or dealing with children or dealing with money or dealing with cheating. And, and, and just read that. And then go read the comments. And you will see what our society is becoming well known for, zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. You mess up. You're out. You're kicked out. You're forbidden to participate. You're fired. That's it. And that kind of language, zero tolerance language, is not corrective. It's punitive. God doesn't have that zero tolerance policy toward his children. He doesn't. If you feel like God has a zero tolerance policy toward you, that once you mess up, that's the end. You're out of here and you're never allowed to come back here. Then you will rightly so be very defensive whenever you're called to task for something you've done that you shouldn't have done. Now, hear this carefully. When I say God does not have a zero-tolerance policy toward you, it is not that he does not mind your sin. I'm not saying that God is tolerant of sin. I'm saying that because of his deep, deep mercy, he dealt with your sin at the cross where he killed his son. And because of that, he can be gracious toward you and you and you and me. And because of that, he can be forgiving. And because of that, he can give second, third, fourth. You can break four, four commandments in one blow. And he still will reach out to you and work to correct you. If you don't understand that about God, then it will be hard for you not to defend yourself. But I want you to understand, I want you to transition from being defensive to being teachable by believing that about God. I'll give you a third factor. Experiences of judgment. Judgment instead of mercy. This goes right along with the last one. (laughs) Right along with the last one. David knew that while God judges sin, he finds no pleasure in judging sin. God judges sin, but it's not like his favorite thing to do. He loves to show mercy. In fact, David writes at another place in Psalm 86, David said, You, O Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love, to all who call on you. God forgives. You can't avoid living in a world where people are quick to judge you, but you can avoid being defensive by seeing God, as David saw him, forgiving and good. It's true. If you see God as being merciful, then you can transition from being defensive to being teachable. Here's a fourth factor. Experiences of abandonment. Abandonment instead of security. When I first thought about abandonment, I 
It's not about stories you read in the news, uh, you know, about a child that was abandoned by a mother who maybe was dealing with some terrible issues in her own life or, you know, parents who have abandoned a child. I thought about orphans and things like that. I thought about the, you know, the big living color. Wow, look at that story of abandonment. Wow, no wonder that person will probably grow up to be really defensive. But then I got to thinking that abandonment is probably far more common than we think. And in a sense, abandonment in very small ways can take very deep root in our hearts. I got to Googling around about this and I I found a psychologist who was writing on this issue and she noted some of the ways abandonment can creep into the lives of people. Let me just uh, share some of them. I've kind of reframed them here. Being consistently dropped off at summer camp, at grandma's house, or even at the gym or the playground while your parents are out running around having fun without you. It's a very small thing, it would seem but it can make you feel abandoned. She goes on, having parents who are not present, whether that's because of divorce or maybe addiction, or maybe they're focused on success and their jobs and money, or maybe they're just emotionally distant. That can cause feelings of abandonment. Or having important people in your life who are extremely judgmental, so it's not safe for you to be you. And when you are you as a little child, They don't accept you. They judge you. Abandonment. Suffering abuse, whether it's physical, verbal, emotional, even spiritual. When people who should love you are treating you poorly, it can feel like abandonment. Now, the experiences of abandonment can make you feel like, wow, that hurts so bad, I will never allow that to happen again. And it can make you defensive so that when someone sees some flaw in your character or some mistake that you're making, you go immediately to a defensive posture to protect yourself. That is not what David did. And David had reason to do that. He'd face some rejection. Remember when he showed up to kill Goliath? Well, he didn't show up to kill Goliath, he showed up to bring lunch. What are you doing here, his brother said. Rejection by older siblings. How many have dealt with that? Yeah, right? Oh, it goes on now. It goes on from his first wife to his favorite son. He experienced rejection. Yet, he avoided defensiveness. How? Again, by knowing who God was. And he trusted God to stay near him. He, he prays in Psalm 51.11, Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. He asked God, don't abandon me. And he trusts God not to abandon him. Okay, let's put this together, okay? Think with me for a minute. You cannot live on this planet without experiences of shame and without punishments and without judgment and abandonment. You cannot avoid those realities. And if they stand unchallenged in your life, you will be defensive. So what can you do to protect yourself from being defensive? How can you be teachable? How can you transition, if you're already a person who tends to be defensive, to becoming a person who is more teachable? And the answer to that is to have a biblical perspective of who God is. David knew that God was a good God who would never leave him. And David chose, and that's a verb, that's something you do, David chose to trust that God was there and that God was looking out for him and that God loved him. This concept of God looking out for you and being there for you is something that Christians innately know is vitally important to remember. 
and something that the enemy constantly wants to rip from you. We know it's important because what do we teach little children to sing right away when they go, when they go to Sunday school or to Bible school or to children's church? Somewhere along the way, someone's going to teach them to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And the Bible verse that is most quoted probably in all of Scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. David could stand and face the criticism without being defensive. And in teachability of heart, he could become even more of a man who is fashioned after the image of God's heart. And you can do that too. You really have to have that biblical mindset. Because a biblical perspective of God gives you what you need to transition from being defensive to being teachable. And again, you can see it in the life of David. A man after God's own heart. If you want to transition from being defensive to being teachable, you need to have a willingness to own your own sin. (laughs) And David does this. Did you notice the last verse we read out of 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13? David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. If you don't own your own sin, you'll never benefit from correction. Rather, you'll constantly be exhausted by defending yourself. David could have defended himself. I mean, David could have worked to get out from under this load of guilt. He could have blamed Bathsheba. Well, Nathan, what was she doing out there bathing? When she knew I'd gone well, that I just had to look out off the top of my palace and see her. It was her fault. I've never heard a pastor say that, but I've heard that some preachers preach that. I don't get that at all. I don't get that at all. He could have blamed Bathsheba, though. He could have blamed his own wife. Hey, you know Michael, man got needs. I've heard guys say that. Or he could have blamed God. Well, God, I don't know why you put your eye on them next to us anyway, you know? You're the one who let this temptation right in my eyes. What was I supposed to do? But David did none of the above. He owned his sin. He confessed it. He repented of it. And he turned to God, trusting him in grace. If you want to transition from being judgmental, I'm sorry, from being defensive, let me say it again. If you want to transition from being defensive to being teachable, you're going to have to own your own sin. Second, second, you're going to have to have an awareness of God's good intention in your life. An awareness that God loves you. He doesn't want to hurt you. So when God confronts us about our sin, it is never to shame us. It is never to punish us or to to even judge us in a negative way so that we would be abandoned. It's never to abandon us. It is always, it is always to help us. To help us. And David knew this. In his prayer in in Psalm 51, in verse 7, he cries out to God and he says, cleanse me with hyssop, that's tied, cleanse me with hyssop. That was a joke, man. You didn't even hear that. Give me a pity laugh on that. That's tied. Pity laugh. Thank you for that. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear. Listen to what he's asking God. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He has an awareness that God's intention is not to destroy him, but God's intention is to restore him and to correct him and to bless him and to bring him joy and to bring him gladness and to make him clean. 
You know what it is to be really dirty and then get clean? Hop into an airplane in the Middle East, travel for 48 hours. At the end of that, I went straight into the shower. That's what I did. And it felt good to be clean. Spiritually speaking, it feels great to be clean. And David knew that that was God's intention, to make him clean. Here's the third mindset. A hope of divine redemption. You know what redemption is? You think of it in terms of the cross and you say, Jesus dying on the cross redeemed me from death and sin and changed me. A number of you are too young to remember this, but I'm old enough to remember when uh, I used to, we used to look for Coke bottles, Pepsi bottles, and we would gather them up and we'd take them to the store. Uh, there was a store with about a mile from my home. Take those Pepsi in my, in, literally in my wagon. Wow, I feel like Little House on a Prairie here, right? Take those bottles to the store and, and get two cents for them. I remember when I moved to five cents, I felt like I'd hit the jackpot, right? Yeah. Take those in and get those pennies for them. And what I was doing was redeeming Coke bottles, pop bottles, right? And then I'd spend that on candy right away. Candy, yeah. yeah. I took something that was, to me, completely useless, dirty, had no value, and I took it and I gave it here, this dirty, useless thing. I gave it here to the, to the clerk, and the clerk gave me back something that was valuable to me, incredibly valuable. That's redemption. That's what God does with you and me. He takes us in our sin, and when we trust Christ as our Savior, he, he redeems us and gives an added value to our life, a value that it never could have had without the death of Christ. He does that with circumstances, too. With bad things that happen in your life, he redeems them. Pastor, I just don't know. With this divorce and everything that's happened, I don't know how God can ever do anything good again in my life. Hey, Willis, yeah. You know that divorce you had five years ago? Yeah. Well, Gerald's going through it right now. I wonder if you could talk to him. Yeah, I'd talk to him. Good, because that'll help redeem the pain that you had. Because it does. God can bring a divine redemption to whatever pain we have faced, even to whatever sin we have engaged in. Don't believe me? David did. David says, if you will redeem me from this, then I will teach people who break the rules your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Redeem the dumb thing I did, the evil thing I did, the sin I did. Make it so that I can get something good out of it and others will as well. Would you do that, God? And a biblical mindset has that hope of redemption that God can take that which was evil and use it for good. When you have that mindset, that willingness to own your own sin and awareness of God's good intention in your life and the hope of divine redemption, then you can really transition from being defensive to being teachable. <laughs> Dads, it was their job to teach you some things. My dad taught me a lot of things. He taught me how to change the oil. He taught me how to cut the grass. He taught me not to speak that way to my mother ever again. <laughs> that was a hard lesson. Still kind of hurts, <laughs> right? Yeah. Dads teach you these kinds of things. If you had a good father teaching you good things and you received it without being defensive, then it was a blessing to you. And throughout life, God plants many people like that into your path who can correct you, who can guide you. If you resist it, if you become defensive, then you lose. But if you receive it well, God can use it to make you into the man or woman after his own heart. I want to pray that 
if you have a trace of defensiveness in your heart, that you can transition that into teachability. So if you're comfortable doing so, as I pray for you, would you please stand? Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the example of David, a man after your your own heart, who was not defensive whenever it came to something being pointed on his life, but received it with a, a spirit of humility and willingness to understand. I thank you that you are the kind of God that makes David's decision wise. And we would make the same decision. We would choose today to be individuals who who want to be fashioned after your own heart. We would choose today, Father, to be people who are willing to own our own sin, who don't hide from it, who don't deny it, but we are willing to say, I've sinned against the Lord. And we can do that because of the death of Christ on our behalf. You've paid for our sin. It's not that you think sin's okay. It's that you think that sin is paid for and hearts that truly turn away from it toward you find forgiveness. Help us willingly own our own sin. And help us to be aware that you have good intention for us. That you do not want to shame us or punish us or judge us or abandon us, but rather you want to clean us with hyssop. And that you want us to be whiter than snow so we can hear joy and gladness and our crushed bones can rejoice. And help us see that in all this, there's a hope of divine redemption. That you can use what we have done as failure for good that you would be honored and others would be blessed. This is our prayer, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.